The scripture reading that's been selected this morning is Nehemiah, the first chapter, verses 1 through 4. Nehemiah, the first chapter, 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah. And it came to pass in the month of Cheslev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in, in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let me begin by expressing my appreciation of the cards, the texts, the communications regarding the passing of my grandmother. They, they, it was very uh, uh, appreciative. We were very appreciative of, of all of you who reached out to us during this past week, and, and thank you to Craig for uh, filling in last Sunday. Uh-oh. thought I was going out there for a second. But I'm, I'm thankful for all of, uh, all, of, all of you for reaching out. Um, it's, uh, it is a blessing when, when someone you, you know and love passes and you know where they're spending eternity. Let's just say that. With that being said, we are transitioning back into our series entitled Under Construction, our study of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, we left off in this series just two Sundays ago. But as you can tell from the imagery on the screen, we're using a construction motif as we journey through these two great books of the Old Testament. And I just want to kind of give you a reminder of where we're at in this series. Because when you look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which were originally one book in the Hebrew Bible, you have the story of three returning trips from exile. Three different groups return from captivity in Babylon slash Persia to resettle the land of Canaan, to resettle the promised land, and to rebuild. The first group returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, and their primary objective was to rebuild the temple. And their return is the focus of the first six chapters of the book of Ezra, and the first four lessons of our series focused on that. The second group of exiles returned nearly 60 years after the construction of the temple under the leadership of Ezra. And his primary objective when he took that group back was to rebuild the Jewish covenant community, to to reinstate and reinforce the penalties of Mosaic law. And that has been the focus of our study for the past two or three lessons and covers the second half of the book of Ezra. This morning we're going to transition into the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah led the third group of exiles uh, back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem, and his primary objective was to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And this construction motif, this rebuilding motif that permeates these two books presents some important biblical truths. Important biblical truths that are applicable for you and I. That's why we've been studying these two books. Because all of our lives are under construction in one way, shape, or form. Every one of us is under construction somehow, some way. You may be constructing your identity. You may be constructing a family. 
You may be constructing a, a legacy. You may be constructing your faith. You may be building up courage or repairing a broken heart or rebuilding trust or even fidelity. But one way or another, we're all under construction. And so we appeal to these books to, to, to give us life application when it comes to the construction projects of our lives. And as we transition out of Ezra and in, into Nehemiah, let me just say that there's still two chapters of Ezra we haven't covered, Ezra chapter 9 and chapter 10. But the issues addressed in those chapters relate well to issues addressed at the end of the book of Nehemiah. So we're going to circle back around to those before the end of this series. But today our attention turns to Nehemiah. So let's get introduced to Nehemiah very, very quickly. Who is he? And, and, and what are the circumstances of his story? That's the question we want to begin with. As Nehemiah, first and foremost, was a Jewish exile living in Persia who ser served as cupbearer to the king, to King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is introduced in the very first verse of his book where we're informed that much of what we're about to read is memoirs because Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1 begins with the phrase, uh, begins with the, phrase the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. As one commentator pointed out, what's interesting about this introduction is that Nehemiah is not identified either as a descendant of David or as a Levite. He was not of royal blood, as was Zerubbabel, who led the first group back. And he was not a, a priest or a scribe like Ezra, who led the second group back. The point is that Nehemiah was just an ordinary, average, run-of-the-mill Israelite. But Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 11 does indicate one thing that was unique about Nehemiah, and that is the fact that he was cupbearer to the king. And that's not a menial task. It sounds like an unimportant, uh, unimportant just uh, um, servant class level job assignment, but it's not. A cupbearer was an extraordinarily important position since, according to one author, it was his job to protect the king from being poisoned by choosing, serving, and, if necessary, tasting his wine. He's poison control for the king. Either because he's picking out what the king's going to drink, or he might have to actually take a sip of that and risk his own life on behalf of the king. This isn't a job assignment the king just gives to the first person he sees on the street. This is a job assignment the king is going to give to somebody he trusts. Because this is his last line of defense for his own life's protection. So this is an important position that Nehemiah has been tasked with. So Nehemiah may have been an ordinary Israelite, but he was given an extraordinary position. That's the first thing we know about Nehemiah. Here's the second thing we know about Nehemiah. He learns that the city of Jerusalem was in disrepair. Now look, look again at Nehemiah chapter 1 in those first three verses. Second half of verse 1 says, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Anani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble, 
and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. That's the news report that, that Nehemiah receives from a relative who has just come back from Jerusalem. He learns that even though that temple has been rebuilt and, and was rebuilt by that first group of exiles that return, the city itself, itself still lies in a state of ruins. Now apparently there had been efforts to rebuild the city. You can go back to Ezra chapter 4. And, and one thing to remember about Ezra chapter 4 is it's not a chronological chapter. In Ezra 4, we're, we're being communicated the events of the first big opposition that rose to that first group of exiles, but that made the author of the text, assumedly Ezra, made him recall all the different ways in which opposition had risen against the, this work, against the repatriation, if you will, of Jerusalem. And he makes mention of one in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 12, an opposition that arose during the days of King Artaxerxes, the same king that Daniel is serving here. And in that opposition, a letter was written by the opponents in Jerusalem to the king saying this, saying in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 12, that they're rebuilding the city, that rebellious and wicked city. And it indicates that they've gotten to the point where they're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. So there was an effort to rebuild the city before Nehemiah. But opposition came in and stopped that rebuilding process. And now they find themselves still without city walls to protect the citizens and to protect the temple. And so we're in this unique situation where Nehemiah is learning that nothing's changed recently. That the city still lies in ruins. And the next thing we learn about Nehemiah is this caused him great distress. Because Nehemiah responded to that situation, to that news about Jerusalem, by mourning. The text says he's mourning. Nehemiah 1 and verse 4, he sat down and wept and mourned for days. When we think about mourning, we think about the loss of life. We think about somebody dying. That's how we re that's that's the connotation that comes with a mourning situation. And yet that's how Nehemiah feels about Jerusalem and what he's hearing about Jerusalem. But why why would the absence of rebuilt walls cause a man to mourn? You know, Nehemiah wasn't alive when Jerusalem was conquered, so he wasn't the cause of the city's demise. And Nehemiah doesn't live in Jerusalem, so he's not the cause of its continued deteriorated state. Why mourn? I think Nehemiah mourns because Nehemiah was so concerned with God being glorified that upon hearing how God's city still lay in ruins, it caused him deep distress because he knew that Jerusalem's plight impugned the character of God. Now let me explain what I mean. Whenever a city was captured and people were taken away into captivity, it was assumed in that day and age that that was an indication that your God was weak, that the deity you served couldn't protect you. And so when the Israelites were taken captive by the Babylonians years earlier, they destroyed that temple. They took away the, the uh, contents of the temple back to Babylon. They took the people captive to Babylon. And it gave the impression that the God of the Israelites 
was no real God at all. And now the God of the Israelites has seen fit to put them back in their place in Jerusalem and to rebuild his temple. And his actions, his gracious actions towards the Israelites, allowing them to escape exile and return to the promised land, are rebuilding his reputation. But yet that city in which he abides with them has no protection. It would be incredibly easy Incredibly easy for someone to come in and conquer Jerusalem again because it has no protection against the outside. And for Nehemiah, that's distressful. Distressing would be the better word there. And the reason is because if someone came and conquered Jerusalem again, guess who that reflects negatively on? On the God they serve. If you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 13 through 15 in particular, we have uh, a message sent by King Sennacherib of Assyria to Jerusalem. Now, King Sennacherib and the Assyrians are the ones who took the northern kingdom. Well, the, Assyria is the ones who took the northern kingdom of Israel captive, while the southern kingdom of Judah remained for a period longer. And King Sennacherib of Assyria is pressing against Jerusalem, sieging Jerusalem during the reign of Hezekiah. And his messenger approaches the city and starts mocking God. And this is what he says in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 15. He says, Now therefore do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? What Sennacherib via his servant is saying to Jerusalem at this time is your God is powerless against me because I'm here sieging your city. And I've taken every city I've ever wanted and their gods have not been able to stand up against me. So what makes you think your God can stand up against me? There is a legitimate concern in the mind of Nehemiah and, his, and, and, and other Jews that the destruction of Jerusalem again, a siege against Jerusalem again, a captive Jerusalem again, hurts the reputation of their God. And so Nehemiah cared about the city of Jerusalem because he cared about how it affected the reputation of his God. What if we had a mindset like that? What if our every concern was how our next decision affected the reputation of our God? Wouldn't it change everything? It changes Nehemiah. Because while we've taken the time here at the outset to, to consider who Nehemiah is and how his situation is set up and what's happening in his life at this time, the big thrust of the first two chapters of Nehemiah are on what he's going to do. See, when we are introduced to Nehemiah, we're introduced to someone who teaches us that if you want to successfully build, then you have to be willing to take the first step. And the first thing Nehemiah does is he does a little bit of a self-examination. Nehemiah took the time to examine himself immediately. At the conclusion of Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4, Nehemiah, Nehemiah says that he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He's mourned what he heard about 
Jerusalem. Now he's fasting and praying. And this period of fasting and praying was not brief. The text implies that Nehemiah engaged in these activities for four months. This is deduced from the fact that if you look at verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah receives the news about Jerusalem in the month of Chislev. That corresponds to a period of time that spans the months of November and December on our calendar. If you turn the page over to Nehemiah chapter 2 and look at verse 1, you'll see that the text indicates he, he didn't approach the king with his request until the month of Nisan, which corresponds to a period of time spanning the months of March and April on our calendar. So for nearly four months, the text seems to indicate that Nehemiah fasted and prayed the whole time engaging in, an, in a, a, a self-examination, an examination of him personally and of Israel generally. And we shouldn't overlook this examination period because all of us need to go through a time of self-examination. And I want you to see just real quickly what Nehemiah does to examine himself. So look in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Look at the prayer he's praying in those verses. He says to God, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we, have, we, we plural, have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah starts off talking about Israel, but he quickly transitions into first-person pronouns. He transitions into saying we, not they. I, not them. He's using language that is self-inclusive because he recognizes that he's contributed to the problem. That his ancestors contributed to the problem, but he as well has contributed to the problem. That's one of the toughest things for us to do, isn't it? For us to admit that we're contributing to the problem. For us to point the finger at ourselves and not at everybody else. For us to accept our own guilt and not that of others. See, during this time of prayer and fasting, what Nehemiah has done is he's correctly assessed the problem. And the problem is that everybody has failed God, including himself. If you keep reading his prayer, verses 8 and 10, you'll see that he continues with these words. He says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. It's interesting because in this portion of the prayer between verses 8 and 10, Nehemiah is quoting God's word back to God's word, quoting God's word back to God. Do you think God needs to be reminded of what he said? No. I don't think Nehemiah is praying God's word back to God for God to hear. I think Nehemiah is stating these reminders of God's word for Nehemiah's sake. I think he's reminding himself of God's promise. 
It's as if Nehemiah was recalling the conditions that God had given in order for the Israelites to be reinstated as his people. In other words, Nehemiah was intentionally praying in a way that forced him to remember and to reorient himself toward the will of God. And isn't that the ultimate purpose of prayer? Prayer is not about bending God's will to ours. Prayer is aligning our will to His. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours be done. That's the purpose of prayer. And that's what Nehemiah is accomplishing even as he quotes God's word back to God. And the point is that if we want to construct a healthy spiritual life, we're going to need to engage in some examination just like Nehemiah. We're going to need to spend some time looking inward instead of outward. If you want to build spiritually healthy lives, then you need to heed the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 where he tells Christians to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith to, in fact, test yourselves. There is a biblical expectation of personal examination. Nehemiah did it in preparation for what his next step would be. Nehemiah looked at himself and said, look, I'm guilty of contributing to this problem. And I know that if we realign with the Lord's will, he's going to bring us back home. Nehemiah took the time to examine himself and to examine the Lord's promise. We understand that examinations are necessary. When it comes to our academics, we've got to take exams so that we can test whether or not receiving, we're, we're receiving a healthy education. When it comes to our jobs, we go through examinations to see whether or not we're capable of continuing that job. When it comes to our health, we go through physical examinations to see whether or not we are physically healthy. Why would we think that our spiritual lives don't need what our educational, physical, and occupational lives need? There are time, there's a time and a place for examination. And here's the thing, this is the part of the sermon where I would normally like to transition away and get to the next point, but the reality is you may not know how to examine yourself. And I don't have all the foolproof answers to how you go about a self-examination. I think to some degree that's something you develop the ability to do over time. But let me give you a couple of pieces of advice for examining yourself spiritually. Maybe consider going to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Just read through the Sermon on the Mount. And ask yourself how you're measuring up to it. Read those Beatitudes and consider whether or not you're achieving each one read Jesus' statements where he says you have heard that that was said but now i say and see whether or not you're living up to the standard he set. read what he has to say about prayer about giving about fasting read what he has to say about going the extra mile turning the other cheek loving your enemies and see how you measure up or, or 
go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Go to the love chapter. Go to that beautiful definition of love that's outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, particularly verses 4 through 8. Take the word love out of there and insert your name. And consider whether or not you're living up to that standard of love we're called to love God with and to love other people with. It says love is patient. Don't read it that way. I would read it, Kyle is patient, and Sarah would laugh. Go through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Put your name in it. See how you stand up. Or go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Read those letters to the seven churches of Asia that, that the ministers recently did a roundtable on. If you need some help understanding those letters, go listen to the roundtable studies, the Sunday 8 p.m. studies we did on that just over the summer. Read those letters. Look at your life and ask yourself which of those congregations you would fit best in based on the current state of your life. See, there's ways we can take God's Word, God's Word which is perfect, God's Word that is capable of reproof, reproof and ex exhortation and teaching and so on. We can take God's Word and we can examine ourselves. That's what we need to be doing. That's the first step Nehemiah took, and that's the step you and I need to take if we want to build success. But moving on, let's consider the next thing we can learn from the life of Nehemiah. Not only did Nehemiah examine himself, but Nehemiah accepted ownership. At the conclusion of Nehemiah 1, we have no idea what he's about to do, but we know he's going to do something because in verse 11 he asked God to give him success when he appeared before the king. Then you get to chapter 2, and Nehemiah shares his grief over the state of Jerusalem with the king, and the king asks, what are you requesting? And that's when Nehemiah responds, particularly in verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 2, saying, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Here's the beautiful thing about Nehemiah. Nehemiah didn't take the approach that, oh, somebody else will take care of it. Nehemiah didn't look at the problem and say, oh, that's somebody else's problem. Nehemiah didn't just assume that it would get handled by somebody someday, somehow, some way. Nehemiah said, okay, there's a problem. I need to be part of the solution. And so he asked the king to allow him to go deal with the wall problem in Jerusalem. He took ownership of the problem. He accepted responsibility for the problem. He is the epitome of initiative here. So over the course of those four months of fasting and praying, Nehemiah came to the conclusion that God's will was for him to step up, for him to take responsibility, for him to be the agent through whom change was made. And I think that's an important lesson for us to understand if we want to have spiritually healthy lives. It's that we don't wait on other people to be the source of change. The change starts within us. We have to be the ones who accept ownership when it comes to the construction of our own lives. And that, I think, is epitomized in John's instructions regarding sin and forgiveness in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. John says, if we say we have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John's words imply a condition that must be met in order for us to receive forgiveness of our sins. It's not the condition of repentance, although that condition is mentioned in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And the condition is not baptism, although that condition is also mentioned in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. The condition that John identifies here is admission. John says that in order for our sins to be forgiven, we have to admit that we are sinners. And that's what it means to take ownership. That's what it means to accept responsibility. In this room, except for the youngest children among us, all of us who are of mind and able to determine right from wrong, all of us, guess what? are sinners. Go ahead and admit it. Because if you don't, 1 John chapter 1 says, you're a liar. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only way for us to construct spiritually healthy lives is if we're going to take ownership of that. We're going to accept responsibility for our part and the repair process. God's done his part already. Grace has already been poured out through his son and his sacrifice on the cross. And through his blood, we can be forgiven. That part's already been done. We can't touch that part. We can't do anything about that part. But we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to confess the identity of Jesus Christ as his son. To acknowledge that his death and his resurrection for us and from God. And we have the responsibility to turn away from our sin, to intentionally attempt not to sin anymore. And we have the responsibility to have those sins washed away by surrendering to baptism, dying to self, in the waters of baptism. But you can't start construction until you're willing to take ownership. So consider this morning whether or not you've made that first move, whether or not you've taken that initiative. Because when we look at Nehemiah, get-go, he was willing to accept ownership of the problem. And that means he was willing to be part of the solution. There's one more thing I want you to know about Nehemiah. And it's one that kind of conflicts with some of our westernized ideals. And that is the fact that Nehemiah enlisted help. Three days after he arrived in Jerusalem and shortly after he examined the walls for himself, Nehemiah spoke to the citizens of Jerusalem. And this is what he said in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. He said, you see the trouble we are how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Do you understand what Nehemiah is doing? Nehemiah is recruiting 
help. He may have told the king that he'll take responsibility for the problem. But Nehemiah understood that he couldn't solve it all on his own. If he had attempted to rebuild the wall without the assistance of the people, the work would have exhausted him. He needed other people to assist him because the task was greater than one individual could handle. See, in our pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps, and if you want something done right, then you have to do it yourself, society, we have a tendency to view getting help as a weakness. But the truth is that enlisting the help of others is a sign of maturity. If you don't believe me, just journey through the Bible. Just go look at some of the Bible's greatest heroes. Moses recruited tribal leaders to handle day-to-day affairs after he received that, uh, that advice from his father-in-law, Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 26. David recruited the mighty men to fight alongside him in 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 through 39. Jesus recruited the apostles to minister with him. Read about them in Luke chapter 5, the first 11 verses. The apostles recruited seven men to help with food distribution in Acts chapter 6 in the first six verses. Paul recruited men like Silas and Timothy and Titus to go on missionary journeys with him all throughout the book of Acts. These men of faith understood that recruiting others, enlisting their help, was not a sign of weakness. It was a sign of maturity. When you really think about it, vulnerability is at its greatest when we're alone. See, if you contrast all those examples I just gave with the following, you realize going it alone doesn't make much sense. Think about it. When did John the Baptist start to question Jesus' identity? It was when he was isolated in prison, according to Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 and 3. When did Elijah grow discouraged in his ministry? It was when he was fleeing from Jezebel and thought that he was the only zealous follower of God left. 1 Kings chapter 9, chapter 19. When did David reach his lowest point? It was when, due to Saul's threats against his life, he found himself hiding in a cave, separated from his family, separated from his mentor, and separated from his best friend. And when did Jesus face a series of temptations from the devil? When he was alone in the wilderness. For all the aforementioned heroes of faith and even the Son of God, the most difficult days for them spiritually were the days when they were isolated. And the point is that there are some things at which you cannot succeed without the help of others. That's why the Bible tells us Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Nehemiah understood he could not be successful at rebuilding the walls if he went at it himself. So he enlisted help. And guess what? In your life, whatever you're constructing, it's likely that you're going to need help at some point. I think that's why the image is given of Satan in the Bible as a lion. 
1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2 refers to the devil as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Think about the hunting tactic of a lion. Lions are patient when it comes to hunting their prey. They wait to attack an animal when it is at its most vulnerable state. The lion's hunting tactic is to separate its prey from the herd, and then when the prey is by itself, it overpowers the lone creature with its strength. You and I weren't made to go it alone. In fact, God has never, since the start of the Israelite community, since the start of the covenant of Moses, or covenant with Abraham and the law through Moses, God has always expected his people to exist within community. You were not made to go it alone. At some point in the construction of your life, you're going to need to enlist some help. And it's not weakness. It's a sign of maturity. When we look at Nehemiah, we look at someone who was willing to move. Someone who recognized that in order for successful construction to take place, he had to act. He couldn't just sit on the sideline. And it reminds me of a story that I, I know I've told before, a, a humorous story I've told before about a battleship. There once was a battleship captain who was peering into the foggy darkness from the bridge of his ship when all of a sudden he saw a light in the distance. And immediately he told his signalman to send a message. The message was, alter your course 10 degrees south. He promptly received a reply, alter your course 10 degrees north. The furious captain sent another message, alter your course 10 degrees south, I am a captain. And soon another reply was received, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am seaman, first class. The captain sent a final message, alter your course 10 degrees south, I am a battleship. The reply was, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am a lighthouse. And the story reminds me that there are times in our lives when, when we may not want to be the ones who move. But that may be exactly what we need. To be the ones to take the first step. To be the ones to take the initiative. What happens when, a, when we operate with that battleship mindset? What inevitably happens is a collision. And collisions tend to be destructive rather than constructive. We're under construction. One way or another, all of us are under construction. And if we want to construct successfully, then we need to heed the example of Nehemiah. We need to be willing to make the move. And that move may be Maybe a move to examine yourself right now and see whether or not you are in the faith. That move might be right now to take ownership of your sin. Admit that you're a sinner and turn to God for forgiveness. That move right now might be to come to this family and get some help. 
whatever your first move needs to be, won't you make it while together we stand and sing?